Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, Warden of Cranmer Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo and share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now on to today's episode. How is John's gospel both accessible and profound? What's it mean to read John's gospel as the culmination of the New Testament testimony to Jesus? How does John's gospel invite us to improvise in response to the love of God? And how does this gospel allow us to read our way into the presence of Jesus? Welcome to today's episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I'll be talking to Professor David Ford. David is Regis Professor of Divinity Emeritus at the University of Cambridge. He's also Chair of Trustees of Lynn's House, Cambridge, a Christian community of friendship between people with and without learning disabilities. He's recently published The Gospel of John, A Theological Commentary. And our question today is, why should we continually reread the Gospel of John. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. David Ford, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. David, you recently published a wonderful book. I have it in my hands, The Gospel of John, A Theological Commentary. And you describe that it's something that you've been working on as a book for over 20 years years. Just give us the background to your experience of writing it and perhaps the jobs and the experiences and the turning points that were part of the journey for you. Oh my goodness, yes. I decided to do it in 2000 when I was emerging from nine years of being deeply involved in a building project, the Faculty of Divinity Building in Cambridge, that had been a completely unexpected thing. But at the end of it, when the building was opened, I decided to treat myself to a sort of heart's desire project, you know, something that was not going to be limited by deadlines or anything like that. I was going to be able to engage with the Gospel of John and let it take as long as it took, not even limited by retirement, which proved to be exactly the case. I retired in 2015 and it went on till 2021. And I suppose thinking the big things in that, that, I mean, the most fundamental thing was just the endlessly fruitful process of rereading and rereading and rereading, you know, and the surprises that came up time after time after time, the extraordinary generativity of, of John's gospel and how, you know, it's got this thing that you it's very accessible, but yet it's deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, you never come to the end of it. And um, and that was certainly my experience. And it's going on being my experience. It hasn't stopped just because I've published the commentary. The commentary is like an interim report in a sense. <laughs> You know, and it's just super abundant. I mean, abundance is one of the marks of John's gospel, obviously. You know, from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You know, it just goes on and on. And all the wine at Cana, all the food and the feeding of the 5,000, all those fish, all, you know, and the imagery of superabundance in relation to glory and life and light and so forth. And I think what that means is that habitual rereading is what I discovered is the real basic practice that you need to do with John's gospel. And I, I suppose I felt that my commentary was really there to encourage other people to become habitual rereaders of John. 
And your book, we'll come on to the rereading in a moment, if I may, because that's one of the ideas I found most intriguing, that invitation to read and reread John's gospel. Your commentary, though, has been described as defying the usual categories, because often commentaries are very scholarly, very detailed, but somewhat inaccessible, whereas your work is very accessible and you focus on the overriding theological questions in terms of you don't get lost in the detail you looked at literary impact as well as biblical theology what were you trying to do in your work that was you hoped was kind of perhaps different or distinctive or a particular perspective well I had a big crisis in 2015 when I retired from my chair in Cambridge and I sat down I'd just given the Bampton lectures in Oxford on John's gospel and that they had to be pretty academic and I sat down and reread all I'd written since I began in the previous 15 years and I just felt it wouldn't do so I scrapped it all and started afresh you know why it wouldn't do was because I felt I'd got the genre wrong the style wrong the level wrong you know that I was falling between stools you know I wanted to be accessible to everyone who can basically read well, like John's Gospel is, but also to be able to draw people deeper and deeper into it. So it had to be accessible. It had to try to draw people deeper. And also it had to have flow. You know, and I reread my stuff and felt it was just falling into the trap of so many commentaries on the Bible, you know, which were going verse by verse, loads of footnotes, loads of academic discussions and so forth, and getting into this, getting it. But it didn't, it didn't even excite me. You know, I felt I really had to begin again. So I did. I I started writing again and I tried it out on my best friend, who's a poet, Michal O'Shiel, and I've written a lot about him. He's quoted in the last pages of the commentary, but also my wife, who's a priest and a psychotherapist and a chaplain. And when they both said, yes, we think you've got a style that will do it, then I felt I'd try to sustain that. And it was basically about accessibility, flow, and an attempt to articulate the depth and the wisdom of John for today. Often that's in italics, you know, little sentences in italics in the, in the commentary. And actually, one of the most demanding things was to see the flow of John. I think John, you know, what I came to think as I was teaching it year after year and also reading it with all sorts of people was that actually the way John works is this inviting you to this endless rereading, you know, and always having more and more for you as you as, as you do that. And down the centuries, there's been different people who have found different things about that. But I find that the modern commentaries just, you know, they're piled up in my study here, but they often lacked something. So I was trying to really invent a new genre of theology. And one of the most exciting things for me in relation to the reception of it, that when the the Society for Biblical Literature in Denver had a panel on the commentary, Catherine Sonderegger, who is my favorite North American theologian, she, uh, her wonderful two volumes of systematic theology, uh, she responded to the commentary and actually saw that it was an attempt to do a different sort of genre of theology and, and appreciate it. And that was just very, very, one of the most encouraging things. Just give us an introduction to the person behind John's Gospel. You don't get lost, I know, in the question of who the author is. But nevertheless, there is a sense of what the author is trying to do of John's Gospel that kind of says something about where they're coming from and the amount of time they've had to reflect on the tradition of Jesus. Just give us a sense of who we might be dealing with as an author. Oh, my goodness, that's such a mystery, isn't it? I deliberately don't go a great deal into it. But, 
you know, there's so many ways you can answer that question. But let me just give one that increasingly is fascinating me now. You know, what the testimony of this gospel is that the beloved disciple is a core eyewitness source for it. You know, however, whoever else was involved in it, writing down things and all the rest, we know that. You know, and that climactic moment at the cross when Jesus says, you know, here's your son, here's your mother. What that suggests is that the original setting of John's gospel is in a home where there were those two extraordinary people, both of them, interestingly, anonymous in John's gospel. And I think there's a sort of self-effacing side of John as an author who's continually just trying to point to Jesus. It's a bit like John the Baptist, as he describes John the Baptist. He increases, I decrease. And you ask yourself, what went on in that home? What sort of remembering? What sort of praying? What sort of learning through being part of a Christian community? And of course, if it's one, if it's the community behind one John, then it's, it's a community with real problems as well. And I think what was happening during those years, and most scholars agree that it, it was written over many years, and there's a lot of thought and meditation and so forth, and interrelation with other texts. I mean, that's what's claimed at the end, you know, all those other testimonies to Jesus. And I think what was happening in the, in that time, that this author was living in a Christian community, was praying, was talking to others who had been part of the whole thing, was also reading things that had come out of, you know, all those other books that would fill the whole world, and was trying to distill the essence of the faith. He knew that all sorts of things could divide the church. You know, you look at the Pauline letters, you look at the other, other gospels, all sorts of issues could divide. But he deliberately tries to do something that is climaxed by this vision of deep unity in love with God, with each other for the sake of the whole world. And how could you ever even dream of dividing the church on anything not in John's gospel after you've read chapter 17? You know, I don't know how, you know, I don't know how people do. But I think this is a mature gospel that is about meeting Jesus trusting Jesus and then maturing in relation to Jesus and maturing in community. And that this is somebody who went through that himself, but went through it deeply in community, of course, with the mother of Jesus, according to the text itself. I think joint authorship, I and mean, I've just finished a book on glorification and the life of faith with Ashley Coxworth from Roehampton, and, you know, done a lot of other co-authorship. It is one of the most intriguing forms of authorship. And I think that's what went into John's gospel, too. You've mentioned already in our conversation, David, this idea that the aim of John's gospel is to establish a pattern of habitual rereading of the text. And you said that one of the aims of your commentary is to encourage people to read and reread John's gospel, to be habitual rereaders of that text. You've also said that we can learn from John about how to read John. Tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that. Well, I mean, you just take the opening words, you know, in the beginning, NRK, you know, which are the opening words of his Bible, of, of Genesis 1-1. Um, you know, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. You know, and see what John does with that. I mean, it's an extraordinarily daring interpretation of Genesis, which is, uh, which has the characteristics of being both imaginative, daring, utterly centred in Jesus, you know, that everything for John is understood through the word made flesh. And just look where the prologue goes after that, you know, in terms of depth of meaning, 
the word of God through whom all things were made. And then climax at the end in 118 with uh, the son in the bosom of the father, you know, close to the father's heart, as the NRSV puts it. You know, that's the depth of meaning, the depth of love. That's our worldview. And then in the center is this person, Jesus Christ. John just regularly does that with texts. I mean, just look at John 6, for example, in relation to the manna in the wilderness, deeper into that text, but also deeper into who Jesus is, you know, together. Or the Lamb of God in in chapter one that resonates with Isaac and with Passover lamb with the suffering servant, all of those together, but also things that aren't in John. I mean, often he he has a way of you know, take the transfiguration, for example, the climactic story in each of the synoptics. What does John do? Well, he has glory right from the start. We have seen his glory, the glory as of an only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And that relationship of the father and the son that's so so critical in the transfiguration is there through John's gospel. So he distributes the fundamental elements, you know, prayer climaxing in chapter 17. The, the Old Testament people, Moses and Elijah, are there in the transfiguration. John has them all the way through. You know, I mean, he's steeped in the Septuagint in his own scriptures. So the transfiguration he takes from the synoptics, it seems to me, and then just soaks the whole gospel in these climactic events. There's something through of the baptism, which he doesn't uh, describe, but uh, of course refers to. And Gethsemane, too, is distributed between chapters 11, 12, and 13, if you look at the way in which Jesus is anguished and weeps and so forth. The result of all this is that, you know, you're meant to interpret the Bible as John interpreted, and you're meant to read John imaginatively, thoughtfully, centered on Jesus, alert to deeper and deeper meaning, prayerfully and practically, always applying it, you know, because John in the end of the day is love is what it, where it's at. Does that mean that these intertexts, which I think is the word that you use, these different texts within the scriptures that John alludes to, assumes, plays with, as you say, distributes across the whole of his gospel, that therefore we need, as we read John's gospel, to be also listening for those echoes, those connections, aware that John is always musically bringing those notes into his gospel. That's a better description of it than I could do. It's absolutely true. That is exactly what he does. And it's astonishing that the richness. I mean, one practice that I find myself in terms of worship, you know, that whenever there's a synoptic reading, a reading from Matthew, Mark or Luke in a, a service, I try to read it Johannineally, you know, in terms of John. And whenever there's a John reading, I try to read it in terms of the synoptics. And I think actually that's one of the things John was trying to, he wasn't trying to be the exclusive supreme gospel. He was trying to get us to reread the others, you know, like the transfiguration, but with new depth. And he also is read differently when you read him through the synoptics and the whole of the Old Testament. In other words, John isn't an exclusive standalone gospel. He's a gospel that encourages you all the time to go deeper into other texts. And in fact, why beyond? Because, of course, Jesus is the word through whom all things were made. So we get into all the sciences and the arts and the cultures and the religions and the languages and so forth of the world as well. I mean, the the horizon of John is God and all reality. Is that why you, I think at some point you describe John as the culmination of New Testament testimony to Jesus, which is a bold claim. Is that because it's simply bringing together these echoes from the other 
New Testament text, not to mention the, the Hebrew Bible as well, but also pointing to that love that is the core of Jesus's uh, message. Yes, I think, you know, I mean, if you look at the New Testament, the two great blocks of discourse in it are really the Gospels and the letters of Paul. And John has the narrative dimension of the Gospels. And I, I think he's writing after them. Not Scholars differ on almost everything in relation to John's Gospel. I think he knew all the other synoptics as well. And I'm really gratified by the way in which scholarly opinion seems to be strengthening on that. But also he has the theological pillars of Paul, you know, on love, on the spirit, on being in Christ and so forth. You know, and it isn't that he does away with the need for the others at all. As I say, he he lets you go deeper into them and, and they help you to go deeper into him. It's not competitive at all. They're, they're mutually enhancing. But I do think coming later, he's wanting the church to be able to mature in its faith and also not get hooked too hooked on the inessentials. You know, so he's trying to name the essentials. And the essentials, of course, are above all who Jesus is, the living Jesus Christ present to you as you're reading this gospel. You know, and on the other hand, being led in the spirit into all truth, into the ongoing drama of life in love. You are utterly loved and you have to be utterly loving. I feel that John, there's a simplicity in John that's beautiful, you know, and, and an organization. The farewell discourses, for example, you know, it seemed to me to have waves. A typical John way of doing things is to have waves of things. You know, there's a wave that goes up the beach and then a, another wave goes further up the beach and then a massive breaker often. And, uh, you know, there's waves after wave and the three core waves, I think, in the farewell discourses, which are about a course in discipleship, really, are you know, learning and being led into all the truth. Uh, and secondly, loving and serving, you know, foot washing and then loving as Jesus loved and then being friends with Jesus and then praying. And of course, the culmination of all of those waves, the learning, you know, being sanctified in truth, the loving, being one with God, with Jesus, with each other for the sake of the world and the praying is in chapter 17. You know, it's the culmination of the teaching of Jesus in prayer and draws up into a, an astonishing life of prayer, it seems to me. You ask the question of chapter 17, David, is there any chapter in the Bible richer in meaning than this? And I think the answer you come to is no. Uh, you describe it as the summit of love. Just introduce to us again what's going on in John 17, and in particular your reading of it, that wave of prayer that you've mentioned. Well, I mean, where do you begin on John 17? Because it is the climax of the farewell discourses. It's, it's where those three big waves of this teaching about discipleship in chapters 13 to 17 culminate. And it's about learning and being led further into all truth. It's about loving and serving and foot washing and so forth. And it's also about praying. And all of that culminates in John 17. But it's far more than that. If you think of John one eighteen, the climax of the prologue of John, uh, where the son is in the bosom of the father. This is the son close to the father's heart. This is the love at the heart of the universe. It's this very daring worldview in which deep meaning and deep love come together. 
And at the heart of that is this relationship between the father and the son. And the purpose of John's gospel in many ways is to draw us into that. You notice how bosom operates in John's gospel that, you know, the next time it is, is at the farewell discourses where at the last supper, the beloved disciple is the one who is on the bosom of Jesus, on the breast of Jesus. And we're reminded of that again at the very end of the gospel in chapter 21. In other words, that we are, in a sense, just as he was on the bosom of Jesus, we are invited to be part of that love in the same sort of way, that intimate, radically intimate love. And what chapter 17 does is open up that reality of intimate love between the Father and the Son and open it to us. You know, that you know, he shares the glory with us. And chapter 17 begins with that mutual glorification, that intensity of divine life and love and light and everything else that we are being drawn into by Jesus. You know, he come to give us life in all its abundance. And the greatest intensity of that life is the life of God, of course. And here we are invited into that, into the truth of that life. He consecrates himself in the truth. Um, and then in those final seven verses, 20 to 26, it's about that climactic vision of unity in love with God, with each other, and for the sake of the whole world. World occurs 16 times in chapter 17. And it's absolutely clear that we are being sent. He also prays for us to be sent as Jesus was sent. We are being sent into that world in the way in which Jesus was sent, in love for the whole world. Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. That includes the whole of creation, which is terribly important. Margaret Daly Denton, in her glorious Earth Bible commentary called Supposing Him to be the Gardener, she really goes deep into what it means this gospel might mean for our environmental crisis and the way in which we treat the earth. But chapter 17 also, one of the great insights into it for me was when in 2009, uh, I found that two of my favorite New Testament scholars, Richard Hayes from Duke University and Richard Borkham, who had just retired to Cambridge from St. Andrews University, were here together in Cambridge for six months. And so I invited them to read the Gospel of John with me. And we put 21 dates in our diaries between July and Christmas. And for three hours on each occasion, we read a chapter of John together. And it was just extraordinary to get two really experienced senior New Testament scholars, both of whom are also really profound theologically, just sharing their wisdom on John's gospel chapter by chapter. And they're very different scholars. And when they agreed, I really noted it well. And when they came to chapter 17, they both agreed that this is a midrash, an improvisation, if you like, on the Lord's Prayer. And it has changed the way I pray the Lord's Prayer. To pray it in the light of John 17 is to be led deeper than I'd ever have imagined into what that prayer might mean. We pray the, the Lord's Prayer once a day, twice a day, sometimes more. What, what, as you pray it, what are those echoes from John 17 that go deep for you as you make that petition? 
well, our father for a start, obviously, <laughs> John begins with father. But, uh, you know, the, the glorifying is the hallowed be your name. That's absolutely fundamental. And there's so many others, you know, deliver us from evil is also there almost explicitly. But I think the most profound thing for me is the on earth as in heaven, you know, that this is Jesus praying to his father and wanting the sort of love that is there between the father and the son to be on earth, you know, that that is to be here with us on earth. And that as, you know, the as and the in are the two of the most profound theological words in John's gospel. If you just look at how as and in operate in John 17, 20 to 26, I won't try to do it for you now. It would take me all night. But what you find is that you're led, you know, the in leads you into the depth of indwelling, God, Jesus, mutual indwelling, abiding, you know, that's right at the heart. It's preposition for abide, right at the heart of John's gospel. And the as is about the imaginative, daring improvisation on all this that you're led into in the spirit. You know, that you're not meant to do exactly the same things as Jesus did or say exactly the same things he said. You're meant to be inspired by the spirit to live as he lived, to be sent as he did, wash feet as he did. And it's uh, an extraordinary, endlessly creative occupation that is about being Christian. Can I take you to another as, which is the as in John 20 verse 21 where Jesus says as the father has sent me so I send you you talk about this in your book what are the implications of Jesus sending the disciples as he himself was sent and breathing the spirit into them as well yes well I mean that little passage 19 to 23 in chapter 20 is in some ways the pivotal climax of the gospel because all through the gospel ever since the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world John has been anticipating the crucifixion you know at various points through he's also right from chapter 2 with the cleansing of the temple been anticipating the resurrection and he's also from chapter 1 Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and he here, the crucified Jesus shows his marks. It's the risen crucified Jesus. So it's the resurrection. And he breathes the Holy Spirit. So nothing could be more climactic than this. You know, this is John's gospel coming to a climax. And what does he say then at the same time as the Spirit? No, the word and the Spirit go utterly together. In John's gospel, the way you get into the Spirit is through the word, of course. And as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's what I would see as the double thrust of John's spirituality. On the one hand, it sends you deeper into, well, how was Jesus sent? Who was Jesus? How was Jesus sent? You have to constantly deepen and deepen and deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ and everything that comes from that, you know, which is infinite. And so you reread the whole gospel asking who Jesus is, how was Jesus said? But you also see the as. The as is that imaginative, daring improvisation on this. When you look at all those things of Jesus, you ask, well, what on earth might that mean today in all the different situations? Because no situation is ever is ever the same. And John is just so good. He has more about the Holy Spirit than any of the other Gospels and is so profound about the way in which we are invited to endlessly improvise in the spirit in our lives. And so that double thrust of the deeper into Jesus and deeper into the world in the spirit, in love, in the ongoing drama with, of course, accompanied by Jesus in the spirit. Deeper into Jesus and deeper into the world. That's a wonderful climax. I want to take you to 
your own reading, your own journey with John, if I can, as we as we finish, David. You described the gospel as being concerned with, and I quote, the single beloved reader. And you write very eloquently and powerfully in the epilogue about your own journey of rereading and rereading and rereading John's gospel. Where's that left you in your own journey of faith, your own discipleship, your own worship and prayers, if I can ask? Well, I mean, it leaves me in the presence of Jesus. I I think one of the basic things is that, you know, when at the end Thomas says, my Lord and my God to Jesus, what that means is that Jesus is present as God is present. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that means those of us who have not seen can have the same experience. And then the author addresses the reader, you know, that this is written so that you may come to trust, to have faith in Jesus and to have life in his name. In other words, what he's saying is that, of course, we don't see Jesus. Jesus is invisible to it. Jesus is present in the spirit. But blessed are those who have not seen but read. What he wants us to do is to read our way into the presence of Jesus. And that, it seems to me, is just inexhaustible. You know, that's why you reread, because you're in the presence of the one that's being talked about and he's present as God is present. And all those other intertexts and so forth lead you deeper as well. And I think that the practice of the presence of God, of course, is right at the heart of Christian spirituality in all sorts of modes. And the constant amazement that this living Jesus Christ is present and endlessly surprises us as well. You know, we have to be open for surprises. Jesus was surprising on earth and he's still surprising. It's so Well, exciting, isn't it? To live in the presence of somebody who is leading you into truth, into love, into glory. It reminds me of your reading of John chapter two, a lovely sentence I found so enlightening, so inspiring. You talked about the miracle of water into wine and you said perhaps the most striking thing is the way the ordinary and extraordinary come together without any sense of tension or contradiction. It's as if our usual concept of the ordinary simply needs to be enlarged to take account of the reality of God. Yes, I mean, John gives us a new category for reality that's utterly unique. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, one with God, one with us in humanity, you know, incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, and breathing the Holy Spirit still. I think if I might just add one thing, the moment when I realised that if John 17's prayer is being fulfilled for us, as I think it is, and we are mutually indwelling in Jesus, then do we really think he has stopped breathing the Spirit, as in chapter 20? Of course, that the reality that we are part of is that he is breathing the Spirit and the Word with the Spirit. And as the Father sent me, so I send you, that that's happening right now, that it's our living, the living presence of God in the Spirit and Jesus Christ himself. That is a, an amazing point at which we need to end. David Ford, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahall.com.